Well, good morning again. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do this morning. Go ahead and make your way to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24. And if you are a guest here with us this week, special welcome to you. We're glad that you've joined us to worship Christ this morning. I invite you to stick six with us, stick six weeks, so you can get to know us as a church, our heartbeat, and what God has called us to do. But also let us get to know you and see if this is where God is leading you to be a part. So we've been through this series so far for several weeks now, prophets, priests, and kings. And if you've missed a few weeks or you're, you're, you're new here, you can hop on our uh, Apple podcast. You can catch up on the different sermons that we've gone through in the past. But let me just catch you up to where we are in chapter 24, just in case you haven't been here. So we started this, this whole series with a woman named Hannah praying for a, a child. If you remember, it was, it was interesting for us to look at how God shapes this whole monarchy, this whole kingdom, with a woman's prayer in pain. And from that comes a, a man named Samuel, who's born of Hannah, who serves in the temple, and God grows him and, and uses him to anoint the first king, King Saul. And King Saul started out and was very timid, not wanting to be king. We find him hiding in the baggage when they're trying to crown him as king. They find him, they pull him out, they put a crown on his head, and they celebrate him as their very first king. But that joy uh, did not last very long. Saul does not follow the Lord very faithfully, starts to oppress the people in a number of different ways, and God tells Samuel to let Saul know that the kingdom's taken from him. He's going to give it to another. And God, through some really cool ways that we talked about in the previous weeks, uh, anoints David as the next king. Now, the only problem with being anointed as the next king is that the king is still on the throne. Saul's still alive, and David has been anointed as the next king. So Saul is going to spend all of his nervous, anxious days pursuing David, trying to kill him. And last week, we found David in a cave, seeking the Lord as his refuge. And we're going to find out that David actually is jumping from cave to cave to cave to cave, running from Saul because Saul is trying to kill him. So here we are in chapter 24, David is hiding in another cave, and Saul is pursuing to take his life. So that's where we have been, and here's where we are, starting in verse 1 of chapter 24. It said, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was to told, he had intel, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took about 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David. And his men in front of the wild goat's rock, which sounds like a great pub, right? The wild goat's rock. Verse 3. And he came by the way of the sheepfold where there was a cave. And Saul went there to relieve himself, which literally means uh, he covered his feet. That's what it, the literal translation is. But the Bible is just real. And I love how honest the Bible is. It's just saying that even kings need to use the bathroom. And so Saul has to go to the bathroom. And so he stops and he goes into this cave. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here it is. Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to the men, the Lord forbid the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. 
So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And Saul looked back at him, and David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I have cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After me, a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David has finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And if you have declared this, this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you do not kill me when the Lord has put me into your hands, for if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Verse 20. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So swear to me, make a promise by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we, we pause to pray now because we need you. We're never going to rightly understand your word until you rightly allow us to see it. And so, Lord, open up our eyes to understand your grace through this passage. And Lord, we find over and over again shadows, shadows in 1 Samuel 24 of the substance of the gospel, what you have done for us in extending your grace to us. And so, Lord, help us to see that truth, to understand that truth, and to live that truth out this week. Now, if you would be so bold, I uh, just invite you in the silence of your heart, to pray something similar, that God would teach you and challenge you through his word today. Pray and ask him to do that now. Would you also just take a second to pray for me as I open up the word of God and help us to understand it, that I would serve you well and honor the Lord well today. Would you pray for me?
Lord Jesus, we need you. And so speak to us for your servant hears. It's in your name we ask. Amen. Amen. All right, what we find in chapter 24 is grace upon grace upon grace. This whole chapter is, is full of grace. Now, grace is a word that we throw around often. My daughter's middle name is actually grace, and so we use it for names or we throw it around flippantly, but, but grace, just so we have an understanding, is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It means that we don't, we don't earn it. There's nothing we do to deserve it. It is something that is given to us. It is a gift. Grace is a gift. And we find three types of grace in chapter 24. Every one of those, David is extending to Saul. And the first grace we find is a patient grace. A patient grace. David has so much patience in what's happening in chapter 24. See, David is being hunted, like I mentioned, from cave to cave to cave. And I talked about it last week. This is a 10-year period of time of David being hunted. So it's not one week or a couple months. It is a long time. And David is being patient in what God has promised him. Now, in his patience, as he's going to these different caves, as he sits in this cave, it just so happens that Saul comes in to use the restroom in the cave which him and his boys are in. It just so happens that, that, that he can sneak up stealthily behind Saul. See, Saul had been outside in the bright sun. He couldn't see. His eyes probably hadn't adjusted well. But David and his men, who had probably heard these 3,000 troops coming or seen them from a distance, run and hide. And their eyes have had time to adjust to the situation, to adjust to the cave, to to see and understand what's going on. And there David sits with what seems like a great opportunity in his hand. But David chooses to be patient. David could have moved forward and murdered King Saul and tried to take the throne by force, but he doesn't. He extends a patient grace to Saul, a patient grace to Saul. Now, David had a long, long, long list of reasons why he should take this opportunity. All these reasons why he should take his life into his own hands, take his future into his own hands, and make things happen. I mean, think about it. He's already been anointed. He's already been anointed as the king. And so why not go ahead and let's move on with the story? Why does it take until... 2 Samuel chapter 9, where David becomes king. Why do we have to go through this long period of gap? Like, let's just be done with Saul and move on. He's already been anointed. David, in his heart, could try to justify this murder by saying, you know, it's just self-defense. He's been hunting my life and trying to, to, to kill me. I mean, come on, Lord. Saul has thrown so many spears at me already. I am tired of dodging and ducking and dipping and diving and dodging. I am tired of it. Can we just like end his life now and allow me to be king? But he extends patient grace. I mean, imagine the strength of patience that he had. All his friends are whispering in his ear in that cave, do it. This is the moment. This is the time. Now. Take his life because you're the rightful king. You're the rightful king. He could have justified it by saying, what's well, actually what's better for everybody. It's better for Israel too. Saul has been a terrible king. If you look back just a couple of chapters, 
He literally kills a whole temple full of priests serving the Lord because they gave bread to a hungry David. He's, he's killing all these people. So, so, so why not let's just move past this. Me being king would be better, right? David could have given so many different excuses. But here's the thing that's important. We tend to, our, our temptation is, we tend to think that the ends justify the means. But the Bible says no. No. God doesn't want to just get to the end. He wants to be honored on the way to the end. He doesn't just care about the ends. He wants to, to be honored all through the process and worshiped all through the process. And so not just us saying, well, the ends are really what matter. No, to God, the means matter and the ends matter. So David knows that he's going to be the next king. He knows all the reasons why he could say, I should take the throne now. But it's his patience. It's his patient grace that stays his hand. And in verse 6, David, with all of these things going through his mind, all these excuses to move forward with what looks like an opportunity in his hand, he says in verse 6, the Lord forbid it. The Lord forbid it. This is not right. This is not a good thing. And in chapter 26, verse 11, he's going to say the same thing. The Lord forbid it. This is wrong. The word of the Lord has spoken. I am not going to murder this man. I mean, this is the first king of Israel. The first king. So you're going to say the transition from our first king to the second king is going to be through mutiny and murder? No. God cares about the means and the end. So David says, no. No. It would actually be better for me to die than for me to become like Saul and murder. See, Saul's been murdering all these people trying to murder David. And David's like, no, I would rather die and do things God's way than do things my way. I'm not going to do it. I'm not. And as I'm reading this passage and thinking about this, the question is, how do we, how do we know the difference? How do we know the difference between providence and temptation? See, perceived providence in our lives will never, never, ever override God's revealed will to us. The purposes of God cannot be achieved by breaking the precepts of God. It cannot be done. And I have met and I have counseled with people who say that they're Christians, will say, no, this opportunity was the opportunity that I had to take. Like, this thing happened, and so it just, I just had to move forward. I had to take this opportunity. Like, God wouldn't give me this such an open door unless he wanted me to take it, right? And I've heard people say, well, I've got a peace in my heart about it. I just have a peace. I, I know what God's word says, but like, but I, I'm different. Like, I'm an exception to the rule. That whole whisper of you're an exception to the rule of the word of God is something that the tempter will whisper in your ear. Not the Lord of heaven and earth. He has given us his word so that we would know right from wrong and that we would choose to do what's right, that we would choose to, to extend patient grace. And oh, I am so, so thankful that Jesus didn't reason to figure out the will of God like we reason to figure out the will of God. Think about this. Jesus, on the night before he passed, did not have a peace about going to the cross. 
He didn't. He actually prayed to God in heaven, I know your will. I know what you've told me to do, that I'm supposed to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. But I don't want to. I don't have a peace about this, God. Is there any other way? And you know what? He had the opportunity. That door was wide open. He even tells his disciples, I could call thousands of angels down right now and be done with all of this. I can. So it wasn't a, well, the, the opportunity's there and I have a peace about it. No. Jesus knew the will of the Father and he obeyed it. He obeyed it. You see, for us, what we tend to do is when we know God's will, we start to negotiate with ourselves, right? And let me just say this. Whenever you negotiate with yourself, you're going to win, right? You're going to win. We start to rationalize the things that we're doing of like, this is a great opportunity or I have a peace about this. But if you slow down, this is a corny way to think about it, but I hope it, you never forget it. When we start to rationalize the thing that we do, what we're doing is we're telling ourselves rational lies. That's what we do. When we try to rationalize the things that we know go against the word of God, we just tell ourselves rational lies to try to justify what we do. And David, of all people, had a long, long, long list of rational lies. And he chooses to be patient and to wait on the Lord. See, just like David, all of us have the temptation to take the shortcut. We all have the temptation. But my application for us with this point is, don't choose expedience over obedience. Do not choose expedience over obedience. This is the temptation that will hit us in many areas of our life. We're like, let's just take the shortcut. I don't want to go through the pain or the suffering to wait on the Lord and to do what is right. I'd rather just cut to the end, right? And we'll do it in multiple areas. We'll read and we'll know God's word for us to be a generous people, to be people that give. And we're like, whoa, I don't know. I got a long list of rational lies of why I don't need to be a generous person. And for some of us right now, even talking about money and being generous, like we get tense real quick, right? Let's just be honest. We just do. And what I find is that many times when we get tense about this, it's because there's just a seed of greed in our heart. We can rationalize it. We can justify it. But we are called by the word of God to be a generous people. To be a generous people. Would we listen to the word of God and obey the word of God? You see, if you give generously to others, you give generously to God's work and God's will, then you should be encouraged whenever we talk about generosity. Because you're reflecting what Christ has done for us. How he had everything, became poor, being generous to us that we could find salvation. Be encouraged. For some of us, we have the temptation to take the shortcut when it comes to our marriages. You see, it seems so much easier to get out of our marriage than to work to repair and to make our marriage healthy again. It's harder and, and what we get is that temptation in our ear of like, man, it's just so much easier. So much easier if I just take this shortcut. Or for us, maybe it's temptation in our singleness to take a shortcut. Where we're like, I've just been single for so long now, I've got to lower the bar. I'm just not going to find anybody. So I know what God's word says, how God's word calls us to, to be married to another believer. But I'm going to really lean into this flirt to convert idea, Okay. Just going to lean in and flirt with somebody, and then they'll come to know Jesus, and then we'll, you know, we'll move forward. And God's like, no, I don't want you to get married and then hope that person comes to Christ. No, get married to someone who already loves me. 
Or we'll, we'll try to take the shortcut. We have that temptation of pursuing sex outside of marriage. We look at what our culture says and what our culture does, and, and we're very tempted to pursue that shortcut instead of trusting in God and in His will. I mean, God's Word says over and over again for us to be holy as He is holy. And He speaks specifically about our sexual purity time and time again. And even says, this is my will for you, your sexual purity. He said it clearly. But the temptation continues to whisper in our ear is that I've got to take the shortcut. I've got to actually be more like Saul because this is a cutthroat world. And so I've got to go and, and earn my keep. I've got to earn, I've got to take my life into to my hands. I can't trust it to God's hands. I can't trust it to God's will. And this is all a temptation for us to run from God instead of run to God. You know what? In chapter 24, we talk about how David had a patient a patient grace that he waited on the Lord, but later he'll fail. Later he'll sin and take a shortcut instead of patiently waiting on the Lord. And it happens with a lady named Bathsheba. See, he knew God's word and he chose to do the wrong thing. And think about it, those that know the Bible. Think about the destruction that it brought to his life as he chose the shortcut instead of God's will. You see, some of us may not be here right now, but all of us will be here at some point. Where we'll have a desire and God will have a desire. But you know what's harder than fighting against your selfishness to obey God? You know what's more frustrating than waiting on God's will to come to fruition? Do you know what's more painful than waiting and trusting on God's timing? You know what's more painful than that? Wishing that you would have when you didn't. Wishing that you would have waited on God's timing and being obedient to God's will when you didn't. Looking back at your life, wishing you'd have made different decisions. Wishing that you wouldn't have made certain mistakes. Wishing that you wouldn't have taken the shortcut. I mean, any of you that have lived enough life, you have, you've seen times in your life where you've given into this temptation instead of patiently waiting on the Lord, jumping ahead of the Lord. Well, church family, that we would trust God and do good and take no shortcuts. And you know what's beautiful about this? The one in whom we pray to, the one that we worship to today, Jesus knows how we feel. He knows what it's like to be tempted to take the shortcut. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is starting his ministry. And there at the very beginning of his ministry, he's tempted. And he's tempted in multiple ways, but one of the ways he's tempted is that the devil comes to him and takes him to a place where he can see the kingdoms of the world, and he says, Jesus, if you'll bow the need, then all these kingdoms will be yours. Now, Jesus already knew that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. See, it's, it's not that Satan's offering him something new, it's just the timing is different. It's the timing. Satan's like, hey, if you bow the knee now, then you don't have to go through this valley of the shadow of death, the cross. And you don't have to die and bear this pain. You can cut straight to the front of the line, and you can just rule and reign over everybody. You don't have to do these things. Jesus had the temptation to choose expedience over obedience. And in this temptation, he perfectly obeys the will of the Lord. And praise be to him for that. 
If he would have chose expedience over obedience, then we would be stuck in our sins in hell for all of eternity. But praise our good and gracious God who displayed the perfect, perfect, patient grace on our behalf. So may we follow his perfect example in his perfect strength. So there's a patient grace that we find in chapter 24. But there's also a merciful grace that we find. A merciful grace. David extends mercy to Saul. See, Saul, in verse 10, he says, you could have killed me. Or David says, I could have killed you, but I spared you. That's what verse 10 says. I could have killed you, but I spared you. David's heart is not full of bitterness and resentment towards Saul for trying to kill him multiple times. Instead, his heart is still filled with mercy and grace, and he extends it to Saul. Did you see the way he approaches Saul? The man who's trying to kill him, he, he bows with his face to the ground and gives him honor. What? It's because he has mercy in his heart for the king. Mercy in his heart. And it even tells us in verses 4 and 5 that David's heart is convicted because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Which I don't know about you, but, but I read this and I'm like, what? This guy is trying to kill you, David, and you feel bad about cutting a piece of his fabric? That makes no sense. Why are you cut to the heart over cutting a piece of his robe? Well, the robe has a very significant importance throughout the whole story of David. Throughout the whole story of, of the book of 1 Samuel. See, back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul doesn't wait on the Lord again. He becomes impatient. He doesn't show grace. He doesn't show mercy. He's very impulsive. And so he disobeys the Lord again instead of waiting on the Lord. And Samuel shows up and he's like, what, what are you doing, Saul? What are you doing? And, and Saul says, Samuel, I want you to come out here and like kind of represent me in front of the people, pat me on the back and say what I did was right even though it was wrong. And this is what we see in 1 Samuel 15 verse 27. Samuel turned to go away because he's not going to do it. Samuel turns to go away and Saul seizes the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. See, robes at that time represented royalty in a number of different ways. And the, the son of Saul knows that as well, Jonathan. Because in chapter 18, he knows that David is going to become king. And so Saul, uh, Jonathan takes off his robe, which represents royalty, and he gives it to David and says, you are the rightful king. You are the one who is going to reign. So while that matters, it's because the symbol of royalty and the robe and what it meant, as David comes up and, and just stealthily cuts off a piece of that corner, and is, he's ultimately saying, I'm going to cut this kingdom away from you. I'm going to cut it away from you. And God pricks his heart because he's not going to do it in this way. No. David, you're not going to Cut the kingdom away. That's not your job. That's not your job. That's not your duty. It's the Lord that puts people in positions. It's the Lord that brings people low. That's what Hannah's whole prayer was about, if you remember all the way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. 
It's the Lord who exalts, and it's the Lord who brings low. It's the Lord who, who gives life, and it's the Lord who takes it away. God is in control of all of that. David, this is not your responsibility. It's not your job to cut the kingdom away from Saul. And so what David does with this conviction in his heart, he's going to make a confession. He's going to come out and confess to Saul what he did. And I can't, I can't imagine what the other guys in the cave are thinking um, at this time. But David's like, I'm going to go out and talk to Saul. And they're like, whoa, time out, time out. Like, there's 3,000 guys out there, and there's like 300 in here. And you're going to walk out and talk to this guy? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, that's a terrible idea, David. That's a terrible game plan. David's like, yeah, I don't care. That's what we're doing. And so he comes out of the cave to talk to Saul. And there's almost a little humor there. I picture him saying, hey, guys. I see you over there, but guess what? I was in the cave. It still stinks in there. But while he was in there using the bathroom, I was able to take a corner of his robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And what David does is he shows off the souvenir to everyone, and he pleads for the truth. I honor the king. I'm not going to try to take the throne through murder. I'm not going to do it. And David extends mercy and forgiveness and grace to his enemy. How in the world does David do that? Let that sink in. How does David look at a man that's trying to kill him and extend mercy and grace to him? Why is he not striking with vengeance? Why is he not stabbing him in the back and, and moving on? Well, David tells us. He tells us in verse 12. As he's there talking to Saul, he says, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me. What he's saying is, the Lord's going to plead my case. David knows who the Lord is, that the Lord is a just judge. David is not scared of Saul, or he wouldn't have come out of the cave. David realizes that, man, it's in the Lord's hands. I can be patient, I can extend mercy, because it's all in the Lord's hands. See, David knows that justice is coming. He knows. He knows that the Lord is a just judge. He knows that, and because he knows that truth, it allows him to say, I'm going to extend forgiveness because I have been forgiven. I'm going to extend mercy and grace because I have been given mercy and grace, and the Lord Man, he is the one who will avenge. He is the one who will set all things right. Which takes our mind to Romans chapter 12, where Paul reminds us today of the very same things. He says, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, God never sweeps wrongs under the rug. If your spouse has hurt you, or you have somebody that you would say is your, your enemy that has hurt you. God doesn't say, well, that's okay. I'm going to take the wrongs and just put it under the rug and let's move on. That's not what God does. All wrongs will have a justice time. They will. And some of you might be like, well, the, the person who wronged me, they're, they're already dead. And th there was never any justice. There was never anything that was done to correct what they did against me. Well... That's one of the things that's beautiful about the resurrection. See, the resurrection is a great hope for us in the face of death. 
But the Bible also talks about the resurrection that will be raised, both believers and non-believers, to a great judgment. A great judgment of how we lived our life. And those that have trusted in Christ will be judged on the merits and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And how he took our wrongs on the cross for us. See, justice was done. Jesus took that justice. And then others who don't know Christ or don't believe in Christ, they will stand there too, resurrected, taking on the wrongs that they've done on themselves for all of eternity. See, the resurrection isn't just a great hope in death, but also a great hope for us in today as we wait for justice, for, for wrongs to be made right. Man, the resurrection gives us hope. So we can say with Romans chapter 12, man, vengeance is the Lord's. He'll repay. I don't have to pay back. The Lord will repay. So will you trust in the justice of God and in the circumstances of your life? Or when things aren't going our way, will we try to be the God of our circumstances? And let me just say this too, as I encourage you to, to reflect our Savior by forgiving giving room for the justice of God, both mercy and forgiveness doesn't mean that you need to continue to be abused. That's not what I'm saying today. You see, David truly forgives. He truly shows mercy. He truly shows grace. But then we find in verse 22 that that Saul goes home and David goes to the stronghold. You see, David forgave Saul, showed grace towards Saul, but it didn't mean he had to trust Saul. Saul's probably like, hey, David, why don't you come on back to the, to the castle with me? Like, you know, everything's good now. He even shed tears, right? He, he weeps and he, he mourns over what he's done wrong, but there's really no repentance because what we'll see over the next few chapters is that Saul's still trying to kill David over and over and over again. And so David forgives him, extends grace and mercy, but then he's like, Hey, I'm going to stay here in the stronghold because you're still crazy, okay? Forgive you. I love you, but you're crazy. Going back to the kingdom. And that's exactly what happened. And for some of us, we need to understand that forgiving somebody doesn't mean that we're continually abused. You can show forgiveness and grace and also wisdom at the same time. May we do that. May we do that. Third point is this, a promised grace. A promised grace. After this exchange between Saul and David... Saul says, you know what, I know that you're going to be king, David. I know you are. This, this whole scenario played out to prove what I already knew, that you would be the next king. And so what Saul asks David to do in verse 21 is, would you not cut off my line? Would you not cut off my lineage and my name? Would you promise when you become king that you would, would, would please, please keep my name intact? Now, David didn't have to make this promise of grace to Saul. He didn't. And actually, everything within him should have said, no, hard pass. Hard pass on this. And even what we'll find out in time, he, he agrees to say this, yes, I'm going to keep this promise. But when Saul hunts him again and tries to take his life, maybe David could have said, all right, I was going to keep that promise, but I'm definitely not now because you tried to kill me again. Like, let's move on. But that's not what David does. Why? Because he extends grace with his promise. Saul didn't earn any of this. And David keeps his word. 
You fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 9, when David becomes king, and he asks, is there anybody left from the line of Saul? Anybody that I can show kindness to and grace to? Why? Because he's keeping his promise that he made right here in chapter 24. And people say to him, David, there is somebody, but like, are you sure you want to bring this person in here? Because like, this person has a, a right to the throne. And you're going to bring him in here and like talk to him? Like, What if there's like a riot and people try to kill you and put him on the throne? And David's like, no, no, no. Bring him in. He brings in this, his, the grandchild of Saul named Mephibosheth. Now this man had nothing to offer David. Scripture tells us that he was actually disabled um, on his feet. And he had many other things that were working against him. So it's not like he could offer David land and riches and wealth. It's not even that he could offer David strength of arms to help him. There's nothing that he could offer David. All he could do is to take from David. And David remembers this promised grace and he extends it to his enemy's grandson. And it says that he looks at his enemy and he says, everything that would have been yours is yours. And he gives him land. And David gives him riches. And David blesses him with all of these things that Mephibosheth did not deserve and could not earn. This is what he did. He, it, it literally says that he allowed him to come in and to eat at his table like one of the king's sons. And David even adopted his enemy into his family. And I hope that you see the shadow of the gospel of this. I hope you see the shadow of which Jesus is the substance, because it's all over this passage. The grace of God. Think about this. Think about what God has done for us. Our sins led to the death of his son, and we are called his enemies, and yet he loved us and adopted us. He gave us the promise of grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For while we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is the gospel. We were enemies of God. We were enemies of God, and God extended to us grace. He could have murdered us. He could have wiped us off the face of the earth. And instead, he extends to us great grace to his enemies. That word reconciled means to make a right relationship. God says this relationship's broken, and I'm going to bridge the gap. How does he do it? Romans 5 says, through the death of his son. And more than that, through his life, through his resurrection. This is the beauty, the beauty of the gospel. So may we respond to the gospel. Respond to the gospel by repenting of our sins and trusting in God. And when we do, the promise that we have is that we'll find the patient grace of God. We'll find the merciful grace of God. We'll find the promised grace of God. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we pray now, confessing 
that we were your enemies, that we were in our sin far from you, and Lord, you came after us. We're prone to wonder, and you're prone to pursue. And so, God, we thank you for that. And we want to be faithful not just to confess our sins like like Saul did with, with no repentance in our heart, but that we would confess our sins and to turn from those things. So God, forgive us for taking the shortcuts. Forgive us for not trusting you and faithfully following you with our generosity. God, forgive us for, for not trusting you and following you with what you called us to do with our sexuality and purity. God, forgive us for not waiting on your timing, but jumping ahead. Lord, those are sins that we want to confess because we know what your word has called us to do. But God, we cling to the promise that you give us, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. And so God, we thank you for that promise. And Lord, as you give us that grace, Lord, would you help us to extend that grace to others? As you forgive us, may we faithfully forgive others. Lord, looking to you, the one who is our gracious redeemer, the one who looked at us far from you and made a way to be adopted into your family. It's in your name we thank you. Amen. Church family, let's stand now. Let's sing to our gracious redeemer.